verses 39 through 46. And as you're opening up to Luke 22, as Christians, we often know that during hard times, or really any times at all, that it is important that we are in prayer, in prayer regularly. But have you ever noticed how strong the temptation can be when you're in the midst of those storms, when you're in the midst of those difficulties? Have you ever noticed how hard and strong that temptation is to not pray, to try to take it all in on your own. Today we're going to see that this was true for the disciples as well. The mood at the close of the Last Supper, and frankly it's depressing. Judas left to betray Jesus. The disciples are fighting with each other. Jesus prophesied failure for Peter and the rest, and his final words are misunderstood due to, due to the disciples' own spiritual dullness. Jesus had told them that he would be rejected and he would be crucified. <clears throat> now, he's telling them that this will all be accomplished soon. And the disciples say, well, hey, look, Jesus, we have two swords. And when offered the swords, Jesus ends the conversation abruptly, saying, enough with this talk about swords. Have you ever experienced a conversation going that way? I look back into my life, you know, growing up, there were plenty of times where I was disrespectful to my parents or something. I, I took it just a little bit too far, and, you know, I was always good at getting really up, right up close to that line and not crossing it. But you'd get there, and my mom or my dad, enough! And it pretty abruptly, at least for me, it, it, it stopped it. I have a feeling when Melody gets a little older, it probably won't. But for Brooklyn, it does. It ends the conversation quite effectively. It's very clear, like, if I, if I keep going, it's not going to end well for me. And that's what we see here. And the disciples, they, they've missed this. They're, they're trying to fight a spiritual battle with earthly weapons, and Jesus says, enough with this. Clearly, the disciples don't understand what is about to happen in the next several hours. And we pick up this morning in Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, which says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Today's passage shows Jesus' disappointment with the disciples carried over to Gethsemane as it begins with him giving them explicit instructions to pray, and it ends with him finding the eleven asleep 
and again charging them to rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The disciples' failures here frame a portrait of Jesus' garden prayer. And Luke's picture of this event, it's briefer than the more detailed accounts of Gethsemane that we get in the Gospels of Mark and in Matthew, where we see that Jesus finds them sleeping three times. And the reason for this, where it's really cool that we have these four gospel accounts, the reason that Luke takes this approach is that he takes a laser focus on Jesus's relationship to his father in prayer. Here in Luke's gospel, we are taken into Jesus's heart. Up to now, as we read through the gospel of Luke, we see that he has been utterly fearless. We see that in the temptation that he faced in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. We see it at the opening of his ministry when his hometown people attempted to kill him. We see it in his disputes with the scribes and the Pharisees. We see it as he taught in the temple. We see it when he quieted a demon or a storm or when he fed a multitude. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, he has been bold and fearless. But now, we see Jesus enter the greatest trial and temptation of his earthly life. And as we begin our passage, as we see in verses 39 and 40, it begins with Jesus' command to pray. Our passage begins with Jesus coming out to the Mount of Olives where he had spent his evenings during that week, and the disciples are following. And Luke doesn't give a big description of where they're at specifically, and he he calls it the place. Now, we know from Matthew and Mark that Jesus went specifically to Gethsemane. And upon their arrival, Jesus calls them to prayer, saying, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Right here, right in the beginning, he calls them to utter dependence on God in prayer. You see, Jesus understood the importance of prayer. He understood what he was going to be facing, and he understood the great temptation that they very soon would be facing. And his priority right there in that moment was prayer. So he begins by warning his disciples of their need to pray. With the cross just hours away. I mean, you would think, logically, it would make sense for him to say, disciples, I want you to pray. I'm about to go through this. Please pray for me. But that's not what Jesus does here. He tells them to pray so that they may not fall into temptation. And we may wonder, well, what temptation is this? I mean, in the immediate, there's the temptation to succumb to physical sleep and to fail in their responsibility to support Jesus. But for the big picture here, it's the temptation in the future to deny Jesus when he is led away to the cross. Well, as we look here 2,000 years later, we look right at our context, temptation is coming for us too. We are here sinful people living in a fallen world. We are going to face temptation. How do we stand firm? Well, the answer is prayer. And as Jesus goes to pray, he calls them to prayer as well. The lesson here is clear. 
If even Christ responds to temptation with prayer, how much more do we need to do the same? It is so important that we empty ourselves and call for divine help. Jesus' words here are a warning against being caught prayerless when the full force of temptation hits, and they are a promise that help awaits those who pray. As we pick up in our passage, we see in verses 41 to 42, Jesus first calls them to pray. Now, in these verses, he goes to pray himself. And Jesus gives his instructions to the disciples. Then he withdraws from them, says about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And so Jesus goes to be alone in prayer. and says he went a stone's throw, which tells us that he went far enough away to be alone, but close enough for his disciples to be able to see him. And he knelt down. And this sounds very normal to us, I and mean, we think, oh yeah, it makes sense, he's going to pray, you kneel down to pray, that, that makes sense, that's the thing that people do. But it's, again, really important that we always look at the Scripture through the context of, you know, in its context, and his kneeling down is significant. Because the customary posture of prayer in that time was standing. That's what would have been normal. But here, Jesus doesn't stand and pray. He kneels, and then he falls on his face and prays. Mark adds that this was because he began to be very distressed and troubled. And the writer of Hebrews says that he offered up prayers of supplications with loud crying and tears. Taken together, these passages reveal the intense agony of Christ's struggle. And in this posture of abject humility in prayer, Jesus lays his life before his Father in complete honesty and surrender. We see he begins his prayer with the expression, Father. He submissively appealed to his Father as he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus is facing the most severe temptation of his life at the moment when he is ready to accomplish the culmination of his life's mission, to bear the sins of the world. And that's what this cup signifies. We see repeated references in the Old Testament to the cup as a powerful picture of the wrath and judgment of God. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And Jeremiah 25, 15 says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup, for the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And so it's really important that we understand what this cup was. As we see Jesus pray, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That cup represented judgment. What Jesus was about to do was receive and bear the satisfying righteous judgment of God the Father upon our sin. 
He was about to bear the wrath of God that we deserved as sinners on our behalf. The perfect, sinless Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, was about to become an enemy of God, who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink from that cup. And taking this figurative cup was the source of Jesus' greatest agony on the cross. It's not just that Jesus was going to die. And it's not just that Jesus was going to die a very painful, a very drawn out, a very embarrassing death. But he was about to bear the weight of our sin. He was about to drink from that cup something that we can't even comprehend. Charles Spurgeon said in reference to this cup, all hell was distilled into that cup, of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. That cup was was steaming with a brew that was so awful, so fearful, so unbearable, that Jesus' soul was in agony. How could he drink such filth? How could he bear the Father's wrath? Though in the upper room he had declared that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood, and thus embraced his own death on the cross so that he could give them the blessings of the new covenant, Here he recoiled at the personal horror that he was about to endure. And this is really important because it speaks to the fact that this was real. This really happened. It's so easy as we go and we read throughout Scripture and to, to not really get ourselves in there. And here is what was happening. And to think of these things as, as events that truly happened. They're historical. They, they are real. Especially when it comes to stories like this, things that we have heard so many times, it's easy to kind of breeze by it. But it is important that we look at the agony of Jesus here and understand the weight of our sin that he was about to endure. Because it is real. And it did really happen. And this wasn't a sign of weakness on the part of Jesus. It's the opposite. His absolute holiness demanded that he recoil at the thought of bearing sin and guilt and judgment and wrath. I mean, how could he respond in any other way? In spite of experiencing satanic assaults beyond our comprehension and agonizing over the prospect of bearing sin, Jesus fully submitted to the Father's will for him to be the sin offering so that redemption would be accomplished. And as he prayed that the cup be taken from him, if it was the Father's will, as he was in agony over the prospect of that, he sincerely prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus wanted the Father's will more than anything. And those are the prayers that God answers. Jesus' prayer was a prayer of great faith because he trusted the Father with everything. 
And this is exactly how we should pray in faith. Not my will, but yours be done. When we go all the way back to Genesis, we see a sinless man, Adam. He battled Satan and sin and self and temptation in a garden. And he lost. And what he said was, my will, not yours, be done. And that loss impacted all of mankind. But the second sinless man, Jesus, he battled Satan and sin and self and temptation in another garden. But the result was completely different. He would say, not my will, but yours be done. And he would not lose. He would defeat Satan and sin and self and temptation. He would defeat death. And the impact of his victory touches people from every tribe and every tongue. Jesus' words to his disciples concerning the importance and necessity of prayer are here modeled in his own life. As he knows that he needs God's help for the greatest temptation and the greatest test that he is about to face. Again, Jesus is not just dying. That would be terrible enough. But he is drinking the cup of the wrath of God. We truly cannot fully grasp, or really even begin to grasp, Christ's sorrow in bearing our sin. Because there is no parallel. There is no parallel to what Jesus endured. It's completely unique. And the weight of that is immeasurable. We see such a powerful indication of Jesus' humanity and his desire for the Father to take the cup away from him. But Jesus also stands out as one completely committed to God's will as he aligns his will with that of the Father. And in the end, he chooses his Father's will over his own. Everything in him wants to avoid the cross, yet his human desire doesn't represent the ultimate good. The will of God does. And so we asked earlier, how do we stand firm against the temptation that is coming in our lives? And the answer was, we pray. Well then, how do we pray in a way that leads to overcoming it? Well, we must experience sin's painful assault. We must be repulsed by it. And we must agonize in prayer to be delivered from it. Basically, we must love holiness, hate sin, and feel its agony. And this leads to a prayer life that desires to follow the will of God over our own. And it's here that we get to verses 43 and 44, where we see the agony of Christ. And at this point, as we get to these verses, I do want to give just a minute to this. As you look in your Bibles, you may notice a note, a little asterisk or something that says something like some manuscripts omit verses 43 and 44. And some scholars are divided over the authenticity or the originality of these verses. But I want to just point this out and, and explain here's why these are, are probably a, original, not a later edition. You know, we have some really key evidence here. These are difficult verses. These are verses that scribes would be tempted to take out 
instead of adding in because they show Jesus as the Son of God needing to be strengthened by an angel, which some scribes, as they are translating, as we had you know, many, many of these ancient manuscripts and the scribes are copying these out, they would have been tempted, tempted to take these out, kind of clear that up, instead of adding them in because they may have believed it to be inappropriate for Jesus. And so the temptation would be to remove verses like these and not add them in. And because of that, because these are difficult and the scribes wouldn't have added these in if they were not original, we can read these verses with confidence and know that they are original. And as we look to these verses, and we see there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. These verses are key here in this passage. The angel coming from heaven confirms that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he represents, the angel represents an answer to prayer. As a human being, Jesus requires assistance from God just as everyone else does. And this test is incredibly severe, and Jesus is in agony as he considers what is before him. No suffering has been greater than the suffering that Jesus is about to face, and he prays with more earnestness, and his sweat falls like great drops of blood to the ground. This is how severe his agony is. This is how heavy the weight of our sin is. And Luke is highlighting the intensity of Jesus' emotional and physical trauma. And the word used for agony in the Greek, it's agonia, or agonia, which describes a state of extreme mental and emotional anguish and sorrow. The verb form of that noun refers to intense physical struggle, like for those in combat, or something like the, the physical struggle, the toll that you know, Olympic athletes would endure in their training and in their competing. We may wonder, why, why was his agony just so insanely severe? And I have four reasons for you. The first we get from Romans 6.23, Jesus knew that the wages of sin is death. And he was going to pay that in full. The second comes from Romans 5.12. He knew that he would bear the judgment of God, resulting in death. The third is from 2 Corinthians 5.21. He knew that he would become sin. And fourth, from 1 John 2.2. 2, he knew that death would bring on him the wrath of God and that he would propitiate it to the full. This is why Jesus was filled with such unremitting dread. This is why he was so fearful. And so we see here the angel comes to strengthen him. And we may wonder, well, strengthening him for what? The angel was God's response to the first prayer. The angel bears God's message that there is no other way, but I will help you. Don't turn from your mission now in spite of the terrifying prospect. I will help you. Here is my angel to strengthen you. And here we get to our last two verses of our passage. 
We see Jesus return from his prayer, and he gives the disciples a final command to pray. Jesus arises from that agony-filled prayer. What does he find? The disciples are asleep. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus prayed hard and in agony. The disciples are overcome with sleep. There's a big difference there. Jesus was ready for the culmination of his mission, and soon he would stand before Caiaphas. He would stand before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before Herod, before his executioners, and he would be doing his Father's will perfectly throughout. He was the paragon of fearless, loving strength. But the disciples were sleeping. And the reason why they were sleeping is important, because it wasn't that they were really tired. It wasn't that it was late. The disciples were sleeping for sorrow. They were overwhelmed with sorrow, fatalism, and despair. They had been told that they were going to abandon the Lord, that Peter would deny him, that Jesus would be arrested and go to the cross. Their world was crashing down. The sky was falling, and from their perspective, their world had collapsed. They didn't know what to do. And fatalism crept in, and there seemed to be nothing left to pray for. It was hopeless. They had been eager to fight God's war with earth's weapons, man's weapons, just a few verses ago. Hey, we have two swords. But here they stumbled with a more essential weapon, prayer. And so Jesus tells them again, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. They were followers of Jesus, and following him now was going to bring a testing and a trial that they could have never imagined. And Jesus encourages them to do this for their sake, thinking of them and their good instead of thinking of how they failed to support him. The theme that began the paragraph now closes it as well. The disciples must continue in prayer so that they do not fall prey to temptation. And such prayer shows a keen awareness of that, that apart from God's grace, we can do nothing, and that endurance and goodness doesn't come from us. It comes from God Himself, that we need to reach out to Him if we want to persevere. But put yourself in the seat of the disciples here. I mean, have you, ever, have you ever done this? Have you ever been so filled with sorrow that you just, you just wanted to go to sleep and escape reality? Or maybe not go to sleep to escape reality, but do something. Get your mind off it somewhere. Put it off and, and just avoid it until, until you can't anymore. I've certainly done that. But here we see what we should be doing during these times. We shouldn't be going to sleep and putting it off until it it comes back and there's, you know, inevitably we have to deal with it on our own. We shouldn't be going to sleep to escape it. So what should we do? We should rise and pray. 
Luke condensed Christ's repeated warnings to watch and pray into one. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In Mark 14, 41, it tells us after the third and final time that he came and found the disciples asleep, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. There was no more time to pray or prepare. The enemy was at hand. But while Christ went to face the enemy victorious over temptation through prayer, the disciples would face the enemy and be defeated. This passage today course, all about prayer, and it gives us six applications about prayer, which we'll go through briefly. The first is that prayer protects us from temptation. The Lord instructs His disciples to pray so that they would not be tempted. As we go throughout our lives, we are never far away from a temptation that if we give into it can destroy us. And we must be aware of that reality. We must be aware of our own sinfulness, our own, um, you know, how how easy it is for us to give into temptation. And we must pray. The second thing that we see is prayer is submission. Not my will, but your will be done. Here's how we know whether we are praying in ultimate trust in God or if we think our ways are best. Can we conclude our prayer request this way? Because true prayer is not about bringing God into our plans. It's the opposite. It's submitting to God's designs, to knowing that as great as I think my plans are, I know that I am not perfect, I know that God is, and I'm going to trust in His design over my own. The third is that prayer is always answered but sometimes with a no. And we must learn to welcome the no just as much as we welcome the yes. If God withholds something from us, the withholding is better than our receiving. And we must trust in His design and in His goodness and in the goodness of God that we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. Because, of course, we're not just called to blind faith here. We have the entirety of God's Word in our hands where we see time and time again His goodness and His faithfulness, and so that we in turn can then trust in Him and trust in His design, even if His answer to our prayer is a no. Fourth, we see God saying no to our prayer request does not equal abandonment. The angels ministered to Christ, strengthening Him. The Father was right there with the Son, even though He didn't grant the Son's request. And we, in our lives, can be tempted to think that the silence of heaven and the no to our prayer request represents God abandoning us. But God promised to never forsake us and to never abandon us. And He remains just as present with us in the no as He does in the yes, as we see through Jesus' own prayer. Fifth, God saying no to our prayer request does not equal a bad outcome. Here the Lord pleads, and heaven answers no. But on the other side of that no is our redemption. It's not a bad outcome. 
It's the greatest outcome that there could possibly be. On the other side of the cross is our salvation in Jesus. And sixth, prayer requires effort and self-denial. The disciples were tired from excessive sorrow, and that's why they found it difficult to pray. However, prayer is warfare against our own flesh, and we must not let our flesh have the last word when it comes to prayer. We war against the flesh, and we press into the Spirit to pray. Here, Jesus is in agony, hearing a no from the Father. And in that no, he rescues us by enduring our punishment and our shame. He removes our guilt and condemnation by what he suffered on the cross. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving his sacrifice was accepted and that we are justified in him. So let me encourage you this morning. Hope in him and follow him. And he will make you new and whole. When Jesus arose from the ground, bloody but unbowed, the battle was over. The devil was defeated. The final temptation was successfully overcome. He would triumph over his human enemies, over Judas and the Jewish leaders and the Romans. And on the cross, he would defeat Satan and be made sin for believers, that they might become the righteousness of God in Him. He would triumph over death by rising from the dead, and be exalted to the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords forever. The cup was in Christ's hands, and He was about to drink it, and His hand was steady. As the band comes up, let me say, 